thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. to, in this chapter today, consider therefore the, the five parts that make these two chapters, chapter 24, 25, the book of Numbers. We're going to look at the third oracle of Balaam, which is from verse 1 through 9 of ch- chapter 24. Then we're going to look at the fourth oracle, which is from chapter, from chapter 24, verse 10 through ch- uh, 24, verse 19. And then there is the final oracle of Balaam, which is against the nations, in chapter 24, verse 11 through 25. So three oracles that Balaam pronounced in this chapter. And then we'll go through chapter 25, where we're going to contemplate the apostasy, the major crisis that faces Israel before they enter the promised land. And that's from verse 1 through 9. And then the pact with Phinehas from verse 10 through 18 of chapter 25. But as I said, as I pointed out, something happens to Balaam that changes him. And I think it's important for us to observe chapter 24. Let's go through it a little carefully. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel... He did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel encamping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said. Now he spoke an oracle. Now that is prophecy. So the first Two verses contain something that is very important for us to um, meditate on. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. This word seeing does not refer to the outer eyes. Because before he spoke the second, uh, his second word... And after he spoke his second word, nothing changed. There were no actions taken. Nothing changed at all. Israel was still in camp where it was. The temperature was exactly the same. Moab where it was. Nothing physically changed. So what did he see? Obviously, the saw here should be 
changed to heard. Because he spoke the word and he heard the word. Yet, Scripture says, saw. So what did he see? This is the first time that Scripture speaks of Balaam being able to see. In opposition to what happened in chapter 23, where what? He did not see the angel, right? This time, he saw. Now, there may be a question that we can ask. Did the fact that the angel of the Lord opened his eyes to see, that when the Lord opened his eyes to see the angel standing with a sword, is it possible actually that that action of God wasn't simply directed at the angel? In other words, it was not limited to the angel, but truly God opened Balaam's eyes to see with a spiritual eye. It's speculation. There is no clear answer in Scripture on that specific point. However, we know that nothing good comes from us. Everything good comes from the Lord. Therefore, when Balaam saw, God gave him the capacity to see, which he did not see before. Something happened which is mysterious. And Scripture here is not explicit about what happened to him. How come he was now able to see? Now, let's understand that a little bit better. Balaam understands the risks that these people are causing, not just to Moab, but to his own people. He, from a selfish standpoint, would not want to see that. He would rather that the Lord, he would rather the Lord curse these people instead of blessing them. His personal interest is opposite to what he is seeing. Do you understand that? Okay, let's think about that a little longer. God's action, especially that of your through your garden angel, works like that. It is able to cut through your own preference and make you see the truth. You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to override it. You can choose to silence it. Nevertheless, when your garden angel speaks to you, he clearly presents to you the truth. If you are impatient, if you are hasty, if you are angry, if you are selfish, it is very easy to pass over the words of your garden angel the way you would pass over a, um, an ad when watching your favorite TV. It becomes an annoyance that you're trying to avoid. But if you do ponder things, if you take time to think things over, if you're able to listen and you're humble, you will see that. You will see this truth and you will take time to observe it, even if it doesn't taste good. Even if the taste in your mouth is bitter, because you just don't want to hear that. 
What is really amazing here about Balaam is that he saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He did not go as at other times to look for omens. Meaning, he didn't try to do what he did before, seeing if God can change his mind. Something changed in him for him to accept God's will. Your will be done. What, we don't know. But it is definitely a spiritual gift that God gave him. Why would he give it to him? We don't know. You see, this hinges or touches upon this notion of predestination or the notion that God does not love all equally. That he does give graces to some more than others. And that does not mean he's unjust because none of us deserve any grace to begin with. Therefore, God's liberality cannot be taken or construed for injustice. But it is clear here that he gave him a grace that is unmerited. There is nothing in what Balaam did that merits this grace. If anything, he showed himself to be a fool. Wanting to argue with a donkey and accusing the donkey of ill-treating him. Which is absurd. Animals don't have intentions of being evil or good to you. They, they, they can't think this way. There's no intention, intentionality in the, in the thought of an animal. They don't look at you and say, oh, I don't like your mustache. I'm just going to slap you. Just, that doesn't work this way. Animals don't have that kind of capacity. So his whole conversation with, this guy, with the donkey was absurd. According to our own logic, God would punish him. Here, he gives him a grace. Why? I don't know. But it does hinge upon this predestination and also about, it, it hinges upon this notion of a, um, the, the communion of saints, the intercession of the saints. We, we don't know what happens in the background that led him to see this, but he saw it. It's a gift of incredible value that he received. He set his face toward the wilderness. What does it mean to set your face? The same expression is used in the Gospels about our Lord in the Gospel of St. Luke. When Jesus set his face um, toward Jerusalem. That means you're going there with absolute intent. So notice, he's moving from the hill where he's standing, he's going down and walking in the wilderness to approach Israel. God's grace working in our soul brings us from the hilltop of pride down into the valley of sorrow and allows us to approach Israel, that is, the church. This is how God works if we are willing to submit to Him. Something attracts Him. You see, Balaam saw that God blesses Israel, so what did he think? Why are they blessed? Let me find out. He makes an effort on his own to get closer. 
That's all he does. He's making an effort to get closer. He doesn't even get there. Because he makes this effort, what happens? Balaam, in the first verse, saw that it pleased the Lord. In the second, he lifted up his eyes. What a strange expression. You're down in the wilderness. He went down to lift up his eyes. You see that? You notice the language? He went down into the wilderness and then lift up his eyes. Where was he lifting up to? There's a bunch of tents over there. Right? Lifting up means taking your eyes from material concerns of this world to the spiritual concerns of God. Seeing things the way God sees them. That's the lift up. Yeah? So what do we say in the Mass? At one point, what are we invited to do? Same thing. Lift up your heart. Same expression. Heart, mind, eyes, point. What do we all say automatically? Do you know what that means? When you say those words, we lift them up to... Do you know what that means? What does that mean? It means you look up to the ceiling. Have you wondered what lift up your hearts mean? And we lift them up to the Lord. What you are answering that you're going to do mean. And do you actually do it? If you don't, why are you saying it? Because these words, remember the holy recorder I told you about? Yeah, Jesus will replay the recorder and will ask you these same questions. Do you know what that means? And if you stand there, speechless, he's going to look at you and say, Why did you say them then? Are you being a hypocrite? Or worse, did you say them thoughtlessly? Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? How, when you look at the little things that we do, we don't pay enough attention to them. And so we go to the liturgy and we say things we don't understand. Now, we all know that grace flows in our life through what? The Holy Spirit, the church, yeah, but, but in us, when it hits us. Which faculty does grace go through? No. Faculty, faculty in us. When, when the grace reaches us, where does it enter? The mind. It requires truth. Follow me. I will lead you to the truth. The truth will set you free. Not your emotions, not your feel good. The truth. That means your understanding of the truth will set you free. Without understanding of the truth, you're not set free. You understand that? In fact, there was so important St. Teresa of Avila, who was a mystic and a great um, saint, and she had an understanding of our Lord that was amazing. She always said that she would prefer to go to a confessor If she had a choice between a holy confessor and one which is not spiritual, but the holy confessor could not explain or or, or, uh, um, share the truth, and that other confessor could, she would always go to the second one, not the first. 
Truth is what sets us free. So, when you are in mass and you're saying things you don't understand, since you do not understand them, you're not giving glory to God. If you're not giving glory to God, grace that is imparted from heaven through Our Lady, the Holy Spirit, Our Lady, the Church, comes upon you and washes over. You can't receive it. Do you understand that? Now, am I speaking, am I saying you have to therefore have a PhD in theology? Is that what I'm saying? You have to understand Greek and Aramaic and Latin. And, is, that, is that what I'm saying? No. Please, when I say truth, I do not mean academic truth. Let me put you this way. Remember I told you there are three holy Bibles. There are three, not one. The one, the most prominent one is the one we study, Scripture. The second one is nature. It's the Holy Word of God. And the third one is the family. It's the family. Let me ask you this question. Do any one of us need a PhD in communication to understand our mother? Let's say you're having a conversation with your mom and she told you something you do not understand. Do you say, well, mom, I'm sorry, I don't know ancient Greek and Aramaic and Latin and I'm not a, a, um, I'm not a, a, you know, I don't have a a PhD in um, uh, mom's conversation, so I can't understand you. Is that acceptable? So what are you going to tell Jesus when you stand before him for your personal judgment? And he points out that you went to Mass all these years and repeated the same thing over and over and over and never, ever thought about, what am I saying? And what does that mean? What what do you think you're going to be able to say back to him? Learn the Mass. A few things. Why am I saying this? Do it bit by bit. Jesus is not asking you that between now and next Sunday you've completely understood Every single word in the, in the liturgy, and you know exactly what's going on to the po- deepest depth. Not going to happen. But pay attention to the words you're saying. And if you don't know why you're saying them, what must you do? Find out. Find out. We live in a country where every subject, every line of the liturgy has at least 22,000 commentary. Find out. What does that mean? Why am I saying this? How am I supposed to say it? Make a little effort. Walk in the wilderness. Come down from that hill of laziness. Come down and make an effort. Ten minutes a day. Pick a a little thing and, and think about it. Try to understand it. Don't tell me you can't do that. If I told you, um, anyone who can explain the Mass fully to everybody would receive, um, would, would, I get, let's, say, let's say our Lord were to appear here and to say to you, if in six months you're able to explain the Mass to a group of youth and help them come to the liturgy, then I'm taking you to heaven straight away. Would you get going on it? Well, all right, surprise. 
You're not going to be able to make it into heaven if you're standing in front of our Lord speechless over a tape where you repeated a thing so often and you have no clue what you're saying. You really think you can make it into heaven? What are you going to do up there? Lift up your heart? You're going to say the same thing? You have no clue what you're saying? Do you think this, this is going to work? It's what I'm saying. We take those little things for granted. We just assume they're not important. And we focus on these other big things. I don't know. You know, baseball. As if they really matter. Did you understand what I'm saying to you? Watch this man. He went into the wilderness. All he did is walk towards the camp. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Israel the way God saw Israel. You see, now that is the gift that I pray you all receive. To see the church the way God sees the church. To be more specific, to see your parish the way God sees your parish. You know, it's very easy. It is very easy to criticize a parish. It doesn't take much. Right? Because all of us, thanks to original sin, are born, are born with a PhD in critical analysis. Right? Since we're this young, I don't like it. It's not good. Right? It's built in us. So it's really easy to criticize. Priest does this, he doesn't do that. We can sit down and start listing it. And as we do that, we're building a really nice, cushy hill of pride under our feet. And the holiness and the beauty of the church recedes from us. Do you understand that um, if you are dealing with a priest, let's say, any priest. Let's take a really bad case. A priest who has committed uh, a heinous sexual crime against youth. All right? You do understand that if you speak to that priest with disrespect, you raise your voice, you show him any kind of disrespect, you understand you're offending the Lord. It's an offense against God. Especially if he's found guilty. You do not disrespect. Now it doesn't mean that if he's doing bad things, you say nothing. That's not what I'm talking about. You have every right to do what you must. But you do it with respect. Don't ever think that by standing and wagging your finger at the priest or showing him any kind of disrespect, you're pleasing God. You know what God is going to say? Because he told us. You hypocrite. Before you take the splinter out of your... take, No, no, take the shaft. Yeah, not a splinter. It's a big trunk out of your eye. You know what he said when they brought him the, uh, the, the woman who had committed adultery? Let the one among you cast the first rock. And you know what's really unstated in that passage, right? 
the one woman who could have cast that rock did not. Mary could have cast that rock. She did not. You know how he spoke to Judas. Judas betrayed him. St. John tells us that the devil entered Judas. And when Judas came to the garden and gave him a kiss, what did Jesus say? Did he disrespect Judas? Did he wag his finger at him? Did he call him names? When he stood in front of Pilate, of Pilate, who scourged him for no reason, did he disrespect him? Did he yell at him? Did he raise his voice? Remember, you want to see the beauty of the church. That's a gift from God that God wishes to give you. But if you are going to act disrespectfully towards the liturgy or towards the priest or towards members of the parish, don't expect God to open your eyes. You're offending Him. He conquered the Roman Empire. You don't think He can actually fix the things in your parish? Yeah, He can. Balaam, for whatever reason, I marvel at this, was given this grace to see the hidden beauty, despite what the people are going to do in chapter 25. He lifted up his eyes and saw Israel encamping tribe by tribe. When he did that, and because he did that, the Spirit came upon him, and then he took up his discourse. He was now able to see because the Holy Spirit came upon him. It's almost like a Pentecost. It's incredible what happened to this man. Don't you think greater things would happen to you if you were to do what he did? Yeah. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes is open, whose eye is open, which is interesting in the singular, whose eye, obviously not the physical eyes, but the inner eye of the soul. Now he recognizes. Now he sees what he couldn't see before. You know, sometimes I, I happen to come across, thank God it doesn't happen that often these days because it really tires me, people who talk to me about Our Lady the way they talk about a book. And God bless them. They're trying to do the best they can. But it'd be like somebody trying to talk to me about my mother by looking at a photograph or having read a book on motherhood. Until you meet Mary personally, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah? I mean by this until you perceive and understand and have your spiritual eyes open to her care, her love for you, her intercession through the stories of the lives of the saints and others. Until you really understand that she's a person alive and you are not standing in front of a statue but talking to the mother of God. You don't know what you're talking about. Oftentimes, it's really hard. When you talk to someone, this is the very first thing you need to do. You need to perceive whether their eyes are open or not. And their eyes are not open. Remember one thing. You do not have the power to open them. It takes the Holy Spirit. So do not spend too much of your energy trying to do something you can't do. Instead, prepare them by removing obstacles, by giving their reason elements to understand and be ready to accept the gift of God when it happens. That's all you can do. And that's very important. Don't get into a boxing match with them. 
you're messing things up, just answer whatever question they have and try to help them see what they cannot see by removing the obstacles. That's all you can do. But that's already a great gift that you're giving them. The oracle of him who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down but having his eyes uncovered. You see the difference now? He hears and he sees. Those two words Jesus used all the time. Right? Many, many, he told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, many, many wanted to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And many are those who wanted to see what you see and did not see it. He said, again, you have eyes that you do not see. You have ears but you do not hear. He's talking about that inner life. To see things the way God sees them. Your will be done. You can't do God's will unless you see things the way God sees them. Yeah? Now he sees that. I mean, it's an incredible, extraordinary gift for a man who angered God. And he sent an angel with a sword to kill him. Talk about God's mercy. I mean, talk about mercy. It is unbelievable. Talk about the Holy Spirit being the consoler, being the advocate, being the one who comes and helps us and comforts us and gives us strength. Look at this example set before you right here. Look at the mercy of God. I mean, there is nothing that this man did to deserve this. Why did he have his eyes open? And what does he see when his eyes are open? Notice, the very first thing he sees How fair are your tents, O Jacob. What does he see? Beauty. How fair are your tents, O Jacob. Beauty. He sees the beautiful. You know, there's something that that makes me marvel about my wife all the time. If I'm walking with her and there is a tree that is bloomed, I see the tree, but I see all the fractal processes that make a tree be a tree. I'm looking at the mathematical composition of that tree, and I'm marveling about all the science behind the construction of this tree. Now, my wife sees the tree. In a way, I don't see it. She has an eye for beauty that I don't have. Now, that is an awesome gift. If God gifted you with the ability to appreciate beauty. Again, this is not a small thing. If you can stand before something, a butterfly or a rose or, or whatever, and marvel about the beauty and then you really enjoy that, that's a great gift. You should be grateful for it. To see beauty. Now, what is he seeing? He's seeing a bunch of tents under the sun. Are they beautiful? You're in El Centro. There's a bunch of tents out there. And it's 11 o'clock in the, in the morning. And you're watching. Would you say, how fair are your tents or El Centro? Would that come to your mind? Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? He sees something that the physical eyes cannot apprehend. He sees the grace of the Holy Spirit. He sees the power of the Spirit. You must 
see the church this way or else you will not be saved. I'm almost talking like a preacher now. (laughs) God have mercy. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah, that's important. So how fair are your tents, O Israel? O Israel, like valleys that stretch so far, like gardens beside a river, like alloway that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. None of that is in front of him. I mean, he sees none of that. If you're standing next to him, you think this guy is on drugs, or he's drunk or something. Where does he see all that? He's not seeing the physical, Right? He's seeing the finality. He's seeing the church. Read the book of Revelation, the last latter part of the book, chapter 20 and moving on, the description of the church. That's what he's seeing. He's given a true prophetic vision to see beyond the physical and declare the glory of God. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed be everyone who blesses you and cursed be everyone who curses you. Now, that, remember, this is a prophecy. The prophecy speaks to what is immediately before you. That is, the encampment of Israel. The rabbis saw in it the, fulfill, saw this, the fulfillment of this prophecy with David. But we all know that there was only provisional. It lasted for a little while. And after that it was. So where is the real fulfillment of it? Right here. Where we are, the church. This applies to the church and her king, our Lord. And remember these words. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are they who curse you. There is a boomerang effect. You bless the church, you're blessed. Isn't that interesting? You can't outdo God in generosity. It's kind of a little bit... It's almost dizzying and somewhat a little frustrating because you're trying to do good to the church and it, God says, all right, I'm going to give you even more than what you just gave. And you, but no, 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 but I really want to, I want to give more. And yeah, sure, you give more and you receive more. Absolutely. That, that's what it applies because it is, the, the word of God will not be um, broken. It didn't apply in the wilderness because of chapter 25. It didn't apply when the kingdom of David was established. It was only provisional and went away. When does it apply? Right now. Here. This is, this, the church is the Israel of God. You understand? Back to what I said earlier. The beauty of the church. You can't bless the church if you do not have gratitude and love to the church. If you do not see the beauty of the church. It, you, can't, you only can bless what you think is deserving of blessings. So your eyes have to be open to that beauty so you can actually bless. Yeah? You can't give what you don't have. These words still stand. And cursed be everyone who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together and, um, 
And Balak said to Balaam, I'll call you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your place. Uh, to your place. I said I would certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. So what happens? What did, what did Balaam lose in the process? Money. Worldly goods. There was a plot going on. This guy was plotting to do something, and God's plan came through. And he's telling him, I got you here to curse them, and you blessed them three times. I'm not going to honor you, which is very ironic, because Balaam received an honor that is way greater than anything Balaam could ever bestow upon him. But he lost the fees. And notice how he reacts. Notice how he reacts. Does he start screaming and yelling at Balak? Does he actually curse him? Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will? What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I am going to, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what, it, what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Notice now his straightforward speech. No hiding anything, straightforward to the point. And now he knows what is going to happen to these people in the latter time. And so he gives this fourth and final oracle about Israel. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes open. He repeats it. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down but having his eyes uncovered. Now, there is an expansion in that vision. The third really applies to Israel. The fourth goes way beyond. There is an increase in the prophetic knowledge that he receives from the Lord, which is really amazing. Because he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Okay, now that is the reason why the, the, we speak of the star of David. Okay? Because of the words of Balaam. That is the reason why Herod was frantic when he heard there was a star. Because Herod, Herod was an Edomite. And the prophecy of Balaam clearly says, And Edom shall be dispossessed. He knew of the prophecy. And he understood that when the star rises, Edom shall be dispossessed. And that's why he said, No one will take my kingdom away from me. You understand? That prophecy, by the way, is going to be reinforced by other um, prophets later as well. Amos being one of them. He repeats that prophecy. I see him, but not now. What I see him. Who is he seeing? He has a vision, a theophany of our Lord. I mean, it is a very broad vision that he has all the way up to the coming of Jesus. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons, all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed, while Israel does violently. By Jacob shall dominion be exercised and the survivors of cities be destroyed. Okay. That is a prophecy about the rule of Christ over the world, about the rule of the church. No enemy of the church will stand. They will all be dispossessed. That's a given. 
What is very interesting about this is that um, Balaam introduces now a form of prophecy will taken up by other prophets later, which is not only about what happens to Israel, but about all the immediate foes of Israel. You see, God is always going to act this way, and this has been, is reinforced in the book of Revelation. He speaks the truth, I mean, the prophet will speak the truth about Israel, the church, and then turn around and prophesy about all those who oppose the church. And prophesy their fall. Because that's what God does consistently. He removes obstacle for the growth of the church. We don't remove the obstacle. We don't have that power or strength. Right? When God told, when, uh, when uh, the, the Holy Father condemned communism, somebody told Lenin, though the Pope is, um, has just condemned uh, communism. And Lenin laughed and said, where are the Pope's tanks? Where's Lenin today? Many of us forget how powerful communist Russia was. We forget the Cold War. We forget the risk of a nuclear war between the United States and Russia. We forget all that. But where is Russia today? No one in the 70s, there wasn't one specialist of Russia who predicted that within 20 years it'd be gone. No one did that. Three kids and Fatima did. You understand? Yeah. So he does this prophecy against all these kingdoms and then he rose and went back to his place and Balak also went his way. In Balaam we have the prototype of the Magi's. The Magi's who came following the star with riches went back poorer because they left the riches behind, yet spiritually their eyes were open. And that's what happened to him. All right? Now, let's, I'll come back to your question in a a moment if you don't mind. I just want to move to chapter 25, which is a very interesting chapter. So, what happens in chapter 25? While Israel dwelt in Shittim, dwelt, dwelt doesn't mean you're camping for a couple of days. It means you're dwelling in Shittim, which is their foe, right? They're not supposed to dwell there. The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. You see, last time many of you had questions about curses. I'll say this to you. Don't worry too much about curses. Worry about morality. Most people go to hell not because of a curse. They go to hell because of immorality. Moab could not get Balaam to curse them. Because they're blessed. So, what do you do? Have a party. Have a party. That's what they did. They had a party. And notice the language. Play the harlot. This is... um, Theological language to indicate that Israel is being unfaithful to the Lord. Okay? Israel is being unfaithful to the Lord. You know, this, is, this language would be offensive today, but I would venture to say that um, a majority of Catholics play the harlot. You know, when you refuse to obey the laws of the church, you're playing the harlot. When you ignore the laws of the church and decide to make your own, you're playing the harlot. 
Yeah? And then people wonder why there's so many sickness and cancer that hit people so hard and they go through so many... Dip- yeah. There are consequences to actions. These invited the people to the sacrifices that are gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. See how easy? Notice how easy. They were with God for 40 years. He walked with them. He fed them. He gave them... Yeah? He took care of them. And then there's a party. And they go to the party and they sacrifice to the gods and they ate their food and did everything to break all ten commandments in one shot. You understand? It isn't about seeing. It isn't about miracles. It isn't about external signs that will keep us from hell. None of that will. If we're not, if we're not working day after day on our virtues, if we're not vigilant and watchful, if you're not asking for God's grace and God's help to fight the good fight, the door to the party is wide open. And it's really easy to get in. There's a party every five minutes, yes, indeed. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Notice the language. They yoked, they put the yoke of this demon on them. Gladly. Nobody pushed them. Nobody put the gun to their heads. They just did it themselves. Okay? But it's not very difficult. You get yourself a TV. You put it in your living room. You keep it on. What are you doing? You're yoking yourself to the TV. It's eating away at your family life. You don't even think about it. You give precedence to a game on Sunday than to Mass. In fact, you arrange your mass around to be able to watch the game. There's nothing wrong in doing this. But if in your heart, if in your heart, you're going through mass impatiently to get to the game, you yoke yourself to the demon of sports. Do you understand? It's not that difficult. I want you to think, how could these people do this? They're terrible. No, 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 no. We're not any better. It's very easy. Right? You got your Facebook. You stay there. You live there. You do everything there. What are you doing? Whenever you undertake an action, whenever you do something, and you don't ask yourself this question, is this helping me to get to heaven? When you do something without asking that question, is this helping me to get to heaven? You're at risk of yoking yourself to something that won't. Fair? See the logic in it? Yeah. Well, they didn't. They gladly went with it. All right. And the anger anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Hang them. Now what about hanging? What is the thing about hanging? We'll see that in Deuteronomy. All the curses that God apply, uh, uh, applied apply to the nation as a whole, with, with one exception. The only curse that applies to an individual on a personal basis is, cursed be the man that hangs from a tree. So he didn't say, cut them down by the sword. He said, hang them. Hang all the chiefs. Well, maybe some of the chiefs didn't do that. They were not partying. 
Why do you think God is saying to hang all the chiefs? Because you see, guilt doesn't start at the moment of the action. Guilt by omission is often worse than the guilt of action. You have someone, let's say, who is speaking disrespectfully to a priest, and you're standing right there, and you do not oppose him, you're guilty. It's guilt by omission. Do you understand? So, and Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you slay his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And they were weeping at the door of the tent of meeting. So they're all weeping. Moses doesn't take action. And he sees that man who brings this woman of the Midianite when God specifically told him, you're not going to do that. You're not going to take their, their, their wives. You're not gonna, you're, right? He brings her in the middle of the camp, in front of the tent. So then Phinehas, who was actually the guard on duty, the, the, the captain of the guard, went after them, and he basically killed both of them. That was a, a son of Simeon. He was a, a nobility, and she was a princess of Midian. So as soon as he did that, that's a declaration of war, right there. Because as far as the Midianite were concerned, they were actually being fairly generous. We're letting our girls marry your guys. We want you to be one with us. Come and join us. And one of you guys take our, our, a princess. We let him take a princess. And th- uh, one of yours, the captain of the guard, killed both of them in cold blood? That's murder. So it's war. But now notice, God says, because Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, who was by now the high priest. Remember, Eleazar was the son of Aaron. Aaron died. Eleazar became the high priest. Phinehas is his son, captain of the guard. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Jealous with my... Notice the word jealous. So jealousy isn't always a sin. Envy is always a sin, not jealousy. Right? To be jealous means to be really um, on fire for the people of God and care for them and protect them. Right? And cared for them and protected them. So one explanation is that Phineas understood that if he let that happen, the plague will extend to the entire camp. And he took on the action to stay the plague. Right? Another one is that he could just not, he could not put up with that sin being committed in front of the tent. Now, what is that? What is that to us? What is that telling us? The action of Phineas is an indication of the kind of violence we must exert when we oppose sin, especially our own. It takes that kind of exertion. It will take everything out of you. To fight it. And you must. You must. You must struggle. So if you're struggling with a vice, if you're struggling with a bad habit, if you're struggling with something you don't want to do, your struggle must be extreme. Must be relentless. You must not give up. You must continue and trust that God will give you victory. God will bless you because you persevere in His name. 
You can't be sort of lukewarm. Oh, well, you know, I eat ice cream every day. I eat three tubs of ice cream every day. Well, what can I do? It's genetic. You know, my dad before me and my grandpa before him, all of us, down all the way to Adam, everybody ate three tubs of ice cream every day. So we just, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, you're, okay. You may not be able to do anything about it, but God can. If you don't call upon his name to help you, then you're basically telling him, I don't believe in you. And so this day, 24,000 people perished to stay the plague. So <clears throat> God just told them that Israel was blessed and all this. And what happens? In one day, one fortnight, they bring about themselves a plague. and 24,000 people perish. And when people perish, the good with the bad. When a plague is unleashed, God does not make a distinction between good and bad. The difference is that for those who are faithful to him, if they die in the plague, it will be counted for them as glory. And for those who are unfaithful to him, as condemnation. We're all going to die one day, one way or the other. And you know what? If you make a catalog of all the ways you can die, there isn't one that is better than the other, despite what anybody will tell you. What I'm talking about is not the physical, external signs of death. Those are the easy ones. and This is what most people focus on. It's when your senses start to fail and you can see anything and then you have the attack of the evil spirits coming at you. How will you fare? How will you cross that bridge? How will you hear the voice of God over that din? How will you be protected? That's the ordeal of death that you want to be spared from. The externals are what they are. But they all lead to the same point in your life where you're going to undergo that trial by fire. How will you go through this? That's what we need to reflect on. So, here's a man who was a non-Israelite. He was a worldly man. He loved money. And he was willing to use his talents for money. And he set out to Israel. And just by making that effort, God rewarded him with a deep spiritual life. At the same time, the Israelites who had the tent, they had the presence of God amongst them. They could go there every day and stand in front of the tabernacle and worship God. One party. It's a... It's a sort of a preparation for what's going to happen with Jesus, right? He comes to them in the temple. They're the Jews. They're the people of God. They don't recognize him. The centurion, the Syrophoenician woman, they're non-Israelites. They see him. How is the Holy Spirit working? We don't know. It is mysterious. But we as Catholics have the ability through the sacrifice of Jesus to truly worship the Holy Spirit and to have a deep personal relationship with the Holy Spirit as God and to entreat Him and ask of Him what we need and ask for His guidance, something that neither Balaam nor Moses 
that none of the Jews could have ever done. Do we do that? Are we doing it? And there is no real devotion to the Holy Spirit without a real devotion to the church. They go hand in hand. So I hope that you will take these words to heart and you will start to really meditate on your own relationship to the church, to the liturgy, to the Holy Spirit, and take the necessary steps to strengthen this relationship. So that when you stand before Jesus for your personal judgment, your words in that holy recorder will not sound hollow, but they will really sound full of praise. God bless you. you. All right. Questions. You had a question. Yes, so the observation is that during the communist era, the communists in Poland were planning cities where there would be no churches. That's nothing... Truly surprising because in Russia they ch- turned churches into gymnasiums and into uh, youth groups, etc., etc. Yeah, they thought religion was just the opium of the people and that we should be uh, get rid of it. Yes, um, is the highest Catholic per capita in Poland? You know, I don't know if it is Poland or Malta. Um, not really sure. But Poland is going through a crisis as well because of capitalism. It brought with us all the goods that we have, and the Polish are having the same issues that we're having. Yeah, you can't necessarily defeat them by religion. You just go with immorality. It always works. And Our Lady, I think, told the three children of Fatima, or in another apparition, I do not remember, maybe it's also to to St. Teresa of Avila, some of the saints, or an apparition, that most people, the majority of people, go to hell because of the sins of the flesh. Is it Fatima? Fatima. Yeah. So you really don't need complicated things with the way we are built, right? So that's why we have to exercise this uh, love of purity that God would grant us to truly see things the way they are. Yes. Correct. So the question is, I did mention there are three Bibles. This is the Scripture, the Holy Bible, the Word of God. Then there is the nature and there is the family. And why is nature scripture? Well, it's because in nature, the glory of God is inscribed. And therefore, by studying and observing nature, we come to know him and know his glory. And it's something that we should not um, neglect. Uh, Particularly in the beauty that we see and the variety that we see in nature, we learn some things about God that is not necessarily expressed in the same kind of clarity in, in Scripture, because it's one thing to hear in Scripture about the beauty of a flower. It's a very different thing to actually experience it, right? That's why. Yes? Is this the first time you mean in Scripture that we hear about the Holy No, it, it isn't. The very first time we hear about the Holy Spirit is in the book of Genesis, first chapter, when the Spirit of God was hovering over the, the deep. So we hear of the Spirit uh, on a regular basis. This is not the first time, no. Yes, absolutely. This is the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes. The notion, the question is, there are a number of operations that speak of the final warning. The notion that God will give us the grace to see ourselves the way he would see us at our personal judgment. Which therefore would be an occasion for all of us to make amend, to go to confession, and to be ready. I've heard of that a number of times. Now, why are you asking this question though? Yeah, I've heard of it. Now, I do not know if, these, if, if the church has actually confirmed that 
to be something that would happen. My sense would be that these types of um, these types of promises are conditional. Conditional, conditional on our ability to receive them. So I'm not. I don't know. I'm. I'm not. I'm, I don't think that they that there are. They will happen no matter what because that's a that's a grace. Right. This would be a grace that God gives everyone to number one understand He exists. Number two realize their sinfulness in His presence and therefore be able to make amend. That's a that's a grace. And again, you can see that the wrath and the grace of God is, in a sense, uh, responding to our own actions. Right? Having, having said all that, we don't need to wait for these extraordinary moments. All that we need to do is take time to do an examination of conscience and ask our guardian angel to run the examination of conscience, not us. The thing we can do is read more about confession. And really understand the sacraments. These two things together will get you pretty close. Because God in His mercy is not going to say, Oh, you know what? Billy steals broccoli and he doesn't know it's a sin. I'm going to just keep that away from him. God doesn't do that. He will reveal to you the things you need to confess. And that's all we can do. Right? So it isn't as if such an extraordinary thing that today is not happening. It is happening very ordinarily to all those who go to confession regularly. You, you essentially open up your conscience to your Holy Spirit and little by little He makes you see all the things that you need to confess. Yeah? So we're not deprived while we're waiting for that event should it happen. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.